Good afternoon and happy Sabbath, everyone. Hey, that was better than usual. There were a couple of people that responded. I'll take that. <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, this weekend has been a, quite a busy one for our family. Uh, Jinha has um, a wedding that she is officiating today. There's a couple that's connected to one of our church members here, and um, they suggested to their friends, hey, our pastors um, provide uh, premarital counseling, and if you're interested, then you can ask them. And so we've spent uh, a number of weeks uh, with these individuals. Um, they, are, they are not Adventists, um, and we had a discussion and um, we just thought it's best to minister to this couple um, in, in this situation. And so um, Jinha is out um, far east in Gippsland area, and she is officiating a wedding for a couple. And so um, today was a bit of a hectic scurry to get things all ready, but we've made it. Um, I just want to repeat what's already been shared in terms of Father's Day weekend. Um, happy Father's Day weekend uh, for those of you who are dads, and, and of course for those of us who have uh, lost family members as well. Um, this is certainly a time of reflection um, and, and, and a time to remember um, the, the contributions that our dads have made to us and our families. Today, I wanted to share with you about my favorite Bible character. Uh, people often ask me um, about my favorites, and, and I have a difficult time answering. Um, people might ask me, Roy, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite music? And I always have a difficult time answering this question. Uh, I had such a difficult time answering what's my favorite color that my children had to designate a color for me, and so my favorite color is now green. Um, every every family board game night, I get the green piece. <laughs> Joshua's like, this is yours. <laughs> there are very few instances when I know what my favorites are. I'm certain that I have a favorite wife, and I have a favorite Bible character. Um, and so today I want to share a story in the Bible with you about uh, a woman who I think that has incredible resilience. We're going to be going through Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. For those of you who have... Uh, scripture um, available to you. You can follow along. I'll have the verses up front as usual. I'm going to start in verses 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. And this reads, Leaving that place, which was Gennesaret, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, to give you a, some sort of, um, I guess, geographic context to this story, just before, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus sp had spent some time and done ministry in an area called Gennesaret. And after he finishes, he departs and heads north and travels to the region of Tyre and Sidon, uh, which lies in the land of Canaan. And this Canaanite woman, she comes to Jesus for help. And this, this scene is very significant because there's a lot of history between the Israelites and the Canaanites. There's conflict over land. There's conflict over religion. There's conflict over politics. And all of this conflict has led to this deep-seated animosity and racial tension between these two peoples these two people groups. But here we see this Canaanite woman. She approaches Jesus, a Hebrew, for help. 
And notice when she approaches Jesus, she uses a very specific title. She says, Lord, Son of David. Now, for a Christian to read this, this is a very normal phrase that we hear often. But for this woman to use this title, it's a different story altogether. The word Lord in the Greek is kyrios, and it's used in the New Testament when people acknowledge Jesus as God. Notice she calls Jesus the son of David. There's this Hebrew numbering system. It's called gematria. And basically, it assigns numerical value to a word, name, or phrase in the belief that numerical values in words bear meaning. Now, when you spell David's name in Hebrew, you use the letters Dalit, Vav, and Dalit. And if you add the numerical values of the name, you come to the number 14. Well, this number is significant in the book of, Na- uh, in the book of Matthew. When you look at the genealogy of Christ, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it connects Jesus to the lineage of King David. Notice it reads here, Thus there were... 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, it's important to point out that this um, genealogy or these numbers, um, they're not factually accurate. Uh, If you go through the book of Chronicles, it doesn't match 14. The, The number 14 doesn't get matched. But Matthew's purpose is highlighting the genealogy of Christ. It's not for historical documentation, but rather he's making a theological statement. Often students of Scripture would memorize large portions of text, and the students of Scripture, they would be able to know, I need to memorize 14 generations from one point in history to another. And in the book of Matthew, the number 14 connects Jesus to David, showing a fulfillment of prophecy, stating that Jesus is an heir to the throne of King David. So here's this Canaanite, someone who is not raised to believe in Hebrew, in the Hebrew God, or accept the Hebrew teachings of Scripture, and yet she calls Jesus the son of David. What was going through Jesus' mind when he heard her use this title? Even the religious elite in Israel, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice how Jesus responds In Matthew 15, verse 23, the first part of verse 23, the text says that Jesus gives her the silent treatment. This woman and this woman says and does all the right things and gets nothing in return. To make things worse, if you look at the second half of verse 23, it says that the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying after us. You get a picture of the scene in that the disciples, they don't even want to speak to this woman. They speak to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, send her away. She wasn't asking for help from the disciples. She was asking Jesus for help. So the ones who should have been loving and caring, the ones that had the responsibility to be representatives of the glory and the power and the grace and compassion of God, they're rude bigots. As if this weren't enough, insult gets added to injury. In verse 24, when Jesus finally speaks, he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells this Canaanite woman, while he's in Canaan, I'm not here for you. Verses 25 and 26, 
The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You know, when I read this story, I ask myself the question, how much can a person take? I would have been gone long before this. I would have thought, if this is what God and his people are like, I want nothing to do with this. I've gone to God in the midst of my suffering. I've asked God for help, and instead of an answer, I get silence. I call out to God for help, and his own people, instead of trying to help me, they try to get rid of me. And finally, when Jesus does speak to me, he calls me a dog. Forget this, I'm out. After Jesus tells the woman, it's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs, the woman responds, verse 27, Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. After this exchange, Jesus says to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This woman gets ignored, offended, and then her daughter gets healed. What a confusing story. And in verse 29, right after this interaction, Jesus departs. Every person who seeks after God will face the same struggles that this Canaanite woman faces. When you, say, when you seek after God, you will encounter silence from God in the face of your personal suffering or the suffering that exists in the world. You will feel rejection from God's people and you will hear God's word or read God's word and it will challenge and offend you. But today I want to share how you perceive Jesus can determine how you respond in each of these challenges. Have you ever gone to an optometrist for an eye exam? After the refractor is placed in front of your eyes, the optometrist places layers of lenses in your field of vision and your vision becomes clearer. I want to suggest that in order to see clearly, we need theological lenses whereby we can view scripture and God's work in our lives. In the book Steps of Christ, page 15, the author writes, The more we study the divine character in the light of the cross, the more we see mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness blended with equity and justice, and the more clearly we discern innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and a tender pity surpassing a mother's yearning sympathy for her wayward child. The author Ellen White here is telling us, study God in light of the cross. We should perceive every word of scripture and every work of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Because this perceptual lens will help us understand who God is and what he is doing. We need perceptual assistance in order to understand the full picture of God. For example, if you look at this picture of a frog resting on a lily pad, if I didn't mention that there was a horse in the picture, you may not have seen the full picture. And studying God in light of the cross, it changes the way that you see him, and it will certainly change the way that you understand this story. So let's look at the first challenge that the woman faces, which is silence from God in the face of her personal suffering. Have you ever called out to God 
in the midst of your suffering and not heard an answer to your prayers? Does the suffering of the world ever cause you to wonder, what is God doing here? Does he even care? There's a whole discipline within theology dedicated to work through these challenging questions. It's called theodicy. Years ago, we had a professor by the name of Anthony McPherson, and he presented a six-part series on this very topic. If you go to the Melbourne City Adventist Church YouTube channel, you can click on the playlists, and there's a series entitled, The Problem of Pain is God to Blame. You can also scan the QR code um, for the first sermon. Uh, I personally believe this is the most thorough look at the topic that I've seen uh, whenever someone has presented on the topic. Usually people try to cover it in one talk, um, and, and Dr. McPherson does a really good job of tackling this topic. Now, we asked Anthony to, pre- to present on this topic because he did his doctorate, excuse me, <laughs> he did his doctorate on this very topic. He covers the first five topics, and I present on the last topic. I recommend watching the first five topics. The story of God's silence in the face of the woman's suffering gives us insight into the apparent inaction of God in our suffering. In the book of Desire of Ages, the story is commented on in page 400, and the author writes, Christ did not immediately reply to the woman's request. He received this representative of a despised race as the Jews would have done. In this, he designed that his disciples should be impressed with the cold and heartless manner in which the Jews would treat such a case, as evinced by his reception of the woman, and the compassionate manner in which he would have them deal with such distress, as manifested by his subsequent granting of her petition. The narrative of this story changes when we see that Jesus ignores the woman, not because he doesn't care about the woman, but because he wants to teach his disciples a lesson. I imagine the disciples thinking about this interaction. Why did Jesus ignore the woman and then help her? Wait, was he trying to test us? This story is nice because we can see why there is silence in the midst of this woman's suffering. Jesus is trying to teach a a lesson, but often we will never have answers to why suffering persists for us personally or in the world. Why is God silent in the moments when we suffer? I can't tell you why the war in the Ukraine persists. I can't tell you why there is suffering in your life personally. Many of you know that I lost my mother as a teenager, and I remember when my mother was in the hospital, there were so many times when my brother and I, we prayed earnestly. I remember walking downstairs to the chapel, and at the front of the chapel, there was this large cross, and we would spend many moments kneeling before this cross, pleading to God, please heal our mother in hopes that God would answer. I don't know if there was a distinctive moment when I rejected God, but I remember after my mother passed, I didn't pray for years. I stopped caring about God, and if I'm honest, there have been so many moments when I wondered, God... Why did you let this happen? And if I'm honest to this day, I don't have an answer to that question. Every birthday, every Mother's Day, every special holiday, there's this gap in our family. I was sitting with one of my mom's best friends some years ago, and she said, I think God let your mother pass so that you would become a pastor. I think I'd still be a pastor even if my mother didn't pass away. (laughs) I didn't say that to her. I just smiled and nodded. 
But my point is answering the why question, it hasn't helped me develop my faith because I don't have an answer to that question. I get that sometimes the answering the why question, it can help. But what do you do when you don't get your question answered? Here are a couple of tips that I want to share that have helped me as I process my suffering. The first tip is acknowledging that the presence of suffering does not eliminate the power and the work of God. Yes, there is suffering, there is pain, and there is death. But there's also grace, hope, and so much life to experience and life to give. So much has happened in my life since my mother has passed away. And I've seen and witnessed God working and moving. On my 40th birthday, Jinha's mom sent me a birthday message. She wrote, Happy 40th birthday, our second son-in-law. No second son. Wishing you health and above all the life of a spiritual pastor. I hope these words accompany you each day. She wrote a bit more, but she ends with, I love you, my son. So yes, death took my mother, but God gave me another one. The second tip that has helped me as I process suffering is to lean on God's people in times of suffering. Jesus seems to ignore the woman in the story, but really he's giving his disciples, he's giving his people a chance to step into the woman's suffering to help her become a person of peace. The disciples don't pass this test, but we can pass this test. So many people are in need of comfort, and we have the opportunity to be the heart, the hands, and the feet of God to those around us. Our, excuse me, our activity and inactivity can determine whether or not someone encounters Christ. There's so much power in asking the question, how is your week? I have I have this bad habit of asking the question, how are you? It's the worst question to ask someone who's going through a bad time because how are they supposed to answer that question? It's better to ask the question, how's your week? So when you suffer, look for God's power working in the face of the suffering. And two, lean on God's people. The woman's interaction doesn't provide a solution at the beginning of her, excuse me, in the woman's interaction Jesus doesn't provide her a solution at the beginning of her encounter with him. But at the end of the encounter, Jesus fixes the problem. And so it is with us. The problem is we're not at the end of the story yet. But the Bible promises that one day Jesus will fix the problem. I know that the promise of the second coming is often repeated in churches. And growing up, this was a regular part of almost every single sermon. But I believe it bears repeating. When we ask the question, why is evil in the world? Why is it allowed to persist? Sometimes no answer will be sufficient. But what I want to point out is that the Bible, it doesn't hide the fact that God allows evil to persist. And it's even tempting to think that God can't do anything about it. 
I highlight this promise of the second coming of Christ because it's a promise that God is going to fix the problem. See, the whole point of salvation, the whole point of Jesus coming to die for humanity is to make the point, is to make, is to bring a solution to this problem. When I think about how long we have to live here on earth, at best, I think we can hope for a hundred years, a hundred years of life. Let's say in that hundred years, we live a life filled with pain and suffering and tragedy. How much pain will we remember after living in eternity for a thousand years? What about a million years? What about a billion years? See, in the present, suffering is difficult. And that's why on a theological level, God offers eternity. A place where we don't have to worry about time or resources. A place where we get to be with one another. See, often when people reject the idea of God due to theodicy, the critique often fixates on the existence of the present problem. But most of the time, the theological solution is overlooked or the solution is misunderstood. Last school holidays, or not holidays, a couple of weekends ago, we took the boys out to Mornington Peninsula and we did this hike um, from Arthur's seat and uh, there's a park and you can kind of hike for about three kilometers and you get to this viewing platform where you can see a waterfall. And so Jin Ha and I and the boys, we, we took off for this hike. And it's kind of the first time where all of us have said, all right, let's go for a, a long-distance hike, right? A long, three, three kilometers is a lot, especially for a, for a younger one. And we get to about 2.5 kilometers. And our youngest one basically goes, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> we're, we're 500 meters away from the viewing platform. And I try, like he knows, <laughs> and we try encouraging him, like, we're almost there, 500 more meters. We walk a few minutes, what, like 400 more meters? And in his mind, he's thinking, every meter I step forward, I've got to backtrack and do it again. And he said that. He's like, I've got to walk back. And he, basically, he was like yelling for like, for like 15, 20 minutes. And this poor kid, and I was like, I don't know what to do because we're already this far out. You may as well see the waterfall. <laughs> well, we get to the waterfall, and there are these two locals that are there. And we found out that there was a road not far from the viewing platform, and they had their ute parked there. And so Jin Ha wisely said, can you give my husband a ride to the other car park so that he can drive here and then our boys don't have to hike all the way back? So they kindly agreed to it, which worked out really well because I would have had to carry this seven-year-old for like three, three, three point seven kilometers. <laughs> so as we're walking to the car park, these two friends start talking about eternity. And it was such an interesting thing to hear secular people talk about forever. And what they were saying is, I wouldn't want to live forever. And I was so curious. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, it would be so boring because you would be by yourself and everybody that you love dies. And like, why would you want to live through pain and suffering over and over and over and over and over again? And as I listened to him, I said, if everybody else got to live with you, would that change the narrative at all? And the, the two friends said, oh, that's interesting. We hadn't thought about that. And so it's almost as if it's like a disregard 
of how religion presents the afterlife because of what it means for them personally without understanding the theological context of what eternity is supposed to look like. And we do that with theodicy, where we're saying, here's a portion of the problem. It lasts for X amount of years in my life, and I don't like it. God is not fair. But what about the ceaseless ages of eternity where there is God and peace and forever? Does that change the narrative at all? I think we're going to get to eternity and realize that heaven is cheap enough. Heaven is cheap enough. The second challenge that the woman faced when she was dealing with the disciples, excuse me, the second challenge that the woman faced was when she was dealing with the disciples. And I want to start by saying as followers of Christ, it is our responsibility to show Christ to people. Many people turn away from Christianity and religion because God's people are not loving and often negligent. And I have often also turned away people. I'm not trying to guilt uh, guilt trip you. This is just reality. And I think as a church, we need to take responsibility. To those of you who are new and seeking after God for the first time, I encourage you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Be here in this place for God. Yes, we are here for one another. But anchor your heart and your attention on God. See, the healing that you are looking for, it can be found as you fixate on Christ the same way that the Canaanite woman fixated on Christ. And I hope and pray that it will never be the case that you encounter Christ in spite of us. But may you be able to withstand the moments when we don't keep our words or our actions are not submissive to the work of, of, of the Spirit. The third and the last challenge, this woman has to navigate the word of God, which seems to offend her. When Jesus told the woman, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it sounds like Jesus was saying, I'm not here for you. The woman falls on her knees and pleads with Jesus. And the strange thing is that Jesus talks to her in such a rude and cryptic way. And the question begs to be answered, why do you talk like this? Just... I don't know, teach the disciples a lesson and show this woman that you care about her because you really do. Jesus is often cryptic and, his, and he doesn't make his word easy to understand. And, and the Bible owns this. Jesus says, I own this. I am confusing on purpose. If you look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 12, the disciples came to him and asked Why do you speak to the people in parables? Like, why are you so confusing? Like, just tell us what you want to teach us. And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So Jesus speaks in mystery on purpose. Notice when he says, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he doesn't say, I came for the lost sheep in Israel. He says, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, as he spends time with his disciples, he's trying to teach them there's a whole other people group that I'm trying to reach and I want the gospel to go out to. 
they have a really difficult time understanding this teaching. But even if you look at another gospel narrative in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says, I have other sheep that are not of this full, uh, this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The apostle Paul, he understood this and he wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. So also Abraham, who is the father of the Israelites, believed God, and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when the woman approaches Jesus, in faith, Jesus sees her as a child of Abraham, an Israelite. The problem was that the disciples, they didn't understand this. And so the statement that it is not right to give bread to dogs or the children's bread to dogs, it should be understood in the light and the fact that Jesus gives the woman what she wants. He heals her daughter. He doesn't give her crumbs. He gives her bread. Jesus wanted the disciples and the woman to know that he considered her to be a child of God. It's so interesting to me that in the very next verse in 29, it says that Jesus left there and went along to the Sea of Galilee. You know, going back to that map, at the beginning of the story, Jesus leaves Gennesaret, walks all the way up to Tyre and Sidon. And after his interaction with this woman, he walks all the way back down to the Sea of Galilee. You know, when, when Jesus tells this woman, I have come here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, what he's saying is, I came here for you. This woman is my favorite Bible character because when it comes to understanding Jesus, she gets it all wrong. She feels rejected. She hears the silent treatment. She feels like he's calling her a dog. And what I find so impressive is that in the face of all this misunderstanding, she practices faith and she seeks Jesus in spite of her misunderstanding. She has the faith that I wish I had. And as you consider, as you consider her story, may it strengthen your own faith. May God bless you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you and we ask for your presence. You, we ask that you abide with us in the midst of our time as we journey through this life. Make yourself known. Help us to sense you. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst, in the midst of our seeking, may we find you. Father, we pray that you would guide us the remainder of the Sabbath. May we find rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.